All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fuck, Tuckians? What the fuck, Ricans? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Thank you uh, for listening. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you've been here a while, here we go again. Today on the show, Katie Couric, uh, you know Katie Couric, from the news and from the Today Show and from being Katie Couric. How can you not like Katie Couric? I was excited to meet Katie Couric and, and spend time with her because I like her so much. I wanted to get to the bottom of why I liked her. We had a nice conversation. So that's something to look forward to. Also, I want to tell you to come hang out with me and my producer, Brendan McDonald, in Anaheim next month. We'll be at the Now Hear This Festival. It's three days of your favorite podcast live and in one place. It's October 28th through 30th, and the special WTF show with me and Brendan is on Saturday, October 29th. And there are a lot of other great shows that day, like How Did This Get Made, Doug Loves Movies, Super Ego, and more. Go to nowhearthisfest.com to get tickets and see the full lineup. And now you can use the offer code WTF when you buy tickets to save 25% off a of general admission. That's nowhearthisfest.com offer code WTF so Boston thank you for coming out to the Wilbur I've been having great shows there the last few years and there was a lot of comedy in town my buddy uh, Bobby Kelly was playing down the way I think Maz Jabrani was somewhere the uh, uh, the the legendary Steve Sweeney was out in uh, some uh, suburb doing a one-man show a lot of comedy Dan Crone uh, opened for me did a great job on the relatively last minute uh, notice I just like to. I I should give my I give my openers a little bit of notice. I, it was actually a week, but I'm glad he was able to do it. He did a great job. But I'll tell you, man, there's something traumatizing about going back to Boston for me. Something gets fucked in my head, man. Whoo! I you know it's like it's going to where the abuser lives, and that abuser was that city. I mean, I went to college there. I started doing comedy there. I've talked about this before. I mean, obviously, I volunteered for it. Uh, I wasn't molested by the city of Boston, but they, a lot of traumatic shit happened there. There's a lot of stuff that happened in college that a lot of like weird elements of my personality that were chipped away at and chiseled out and created there in some respects. I did a lot of searching there and went through a lot of pain there, heartbreak, uh, disappointments. But, uh, you know, so I learned, to f- I figured out who I was. At, at least at that point in time, which was a lot of different things every year or so, you know, college. And then comedy, going, doing all those one-nighters, driving into the middle of fucking nowhere. And I get a post-traumatic stress reaction when I go to Boston. I mean, I got there late Friday night. I mistakenly stayed at the W Hotel, which is right across from the venue. I've stayed there before primarily because it's right there, but it's a fucking nightclub at night. I get in at 12, 12 at night, 12.50 at night, 12, it's like one in the morning. You know, the front doors are locked off. I got to go through a side door and walk through this blaring fucking nightclub that is the bar at the W. And that's, that's the W's thing. It's fine. It's fine. I, it's, maybe I'm just too old for that shit. And it's not cheap, right? So I check, I'm checking in with the guy and I'm like, uh, Marin, he's like, what? And I'm like, Mark Marin. And he's like, uh, how are you paying for this? I'm like, what? And then we're both doing what? And it's like, it's fucking ridiculous. You know, I'm not that old a Jew where I got to be what? I'm not that, I'm not old manning that much to where I'm like, what? Huh? What? 
I do it more than I like, but usually it's just a habit because I can usually hear. But this time it was just just a bunch of you know young people who were overdressed trying to get fucked to shitty music right behind me and i'm just trying to check into the hotel to get some rest finally we go through that charade and then i go up to my room and i open the room door and you know that feeling where you look into a hotel room and you're like oh oh, oh oh what's what's there's a problem it was like the bed wasn't made but the shit to make it was there certain things in the room weren't cleaned and i didn't know what was going it looked like the maid quit in the middle of doing my room like that was what sent her over the edge like fuck this and walked out and they didn't know it but then i'm like is this someone's room am i walking in i said hello then i don't know why i'm half thinking i'm going to find a body and then i'm going to be blamed for it and then it's going to be a a strange ordeal a future documentary about how i was set up at the w hotel and they you know that's really i something was just wrong and that the room didn't get clean i didn't need to take it to that level so I went downstairs and I'm like, my room's not clean. The guy's like, what? And I'm like, it's not clean. It looks like the maid didn't finish or something. He's like, huh? And I'm like, I need another. And I was pissed. I'm like, dude, this fucking nightclub bullshit. And like, I'm not, this isn't a cheap fucking hotel. I don't need this shit. They didn't give me a better room. They gave me a room with two twin beds. Anyway, I still have that weird fear that, yeah, and this is years after the fact, after after making my fucking bones in goddamn nightclubs and pubs and bowling alleys and conference, hotel conference rooms, just one-nighters, all New England. Like I, That's where I cut my teeth and learned how to do time as a comic. And there was never a night where I wasn't afraid, where I walked, there was never a night where I'd walk into a situation and either there was nine or 10 people there, which made it very difficult and sad, but I grew to appreciate that later. I don't mind a small audience. Or there was just one table full of fucking meathead townies who were just gonna, you know, they were like the opposite of me and they were gonna make it difficult. I was scarred by that. And a lot of times it didn't happen. A lot of times I was surprised, but anytime I go to Boston, there's I think there's a deep fear that I'm going to get on stage and someone's going to go, Mac! And they don't, worse yet, they won't even know my name. What the fuck is this? You suck. You fucking suck. Fuck you. Like, I I just, I, I invent that guy or a table full of them when I go to Boston. I'm like, they're going to, they're going to hurt me. They're going to make this difficult. I feel that the the weird old defense is coming up, but I can't do that anymore. Like all this old t- fear and trauma and fucked up, you know, memories, nostalgic horror overtakes me. And it's almost like I'm up in my hotel room going, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. I, I don't know how to do this. Who am I? What am I doing? It's crazy. It's. I guess this is just normal because I got a lot of stuff going on. But as soon as I get over to the theater, I'm like, I understand this. This is what I do. This is what I've done my entire fucking life. And I talk about it. I get All I got to do is plant myself in the present and fucking move through it. I just, I think, there's part of me, I think, that needs to do that so I'm forced to just reckon with my feelings publicly for the first 10 minutes of my show. Talk about the hotel. Talk about the old days. Make it funny in the moment. And then you get into the present. Then I arrive in my fucking skin and I show up for the riffing. And I do the bits. And it was beautiful. Great audience in Boston. Always nice to see everybody. Thank you for coming out. Thank you very much.
I appreciate it. And also the W, thank you for the glass of uh, weird chocolates with liquor in them and the bottle of vodka I couldn't drink and a nice tall glass of orange juice that I got in my room after my shows as an apology for me walking into a room that wasn't cleaned. All right, are we good? Enough said. I had great shows. I did one. I did my first week of shooting on this new show that I'm doing. Glow, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. It was fun. I got to comb my hair different and look like I'm from the mid '80s. I wore bell bottoms. All the uh, women are doing amazing. It's just, it's a very interesting world, and it's really a. A, a, an honor in a way to work with Alison Brie, who's a, a, a spectacular actress. And, and it makes, I'm, you know, I'm focusing. I like working with good actors. It makes me feel like uh, I can do it. And I think generally when I see myself working with good actors, they make you look better and that, that makes it exciting. And Genji Cohen is great. Uh, Liz and Carly, everyone's great over there. All, and I'll, I'll by, hopefully by the end, I'll know all the other, you know, dozen women's names. And uh, they built this amazing set. It's a, it's a, they built the set where you would think wrestling would go on, you know, learning how to wrestle, doing that. I, I don't know how much I can talk about yet. Everything's good. You want to, you want to hear me and Katie Couric talking? That would be good, right? Uh, Katie Couric has now, now has her own podcast on the Earwolf Network. You can get the Katie Couric podcast on Howl or wherever you get podcasts. It's so funny saying Howl is so hard for me and saying Glow is so hard for me. G L W L tricky i have to be very aware of it howl glow howl okay this is me and katie couric so when did you get here you got here yesterday no i've been here i came for stand up to cancer because that's an organization i started to really encourage collaboration instead of competition among cancer scientists We've raised well over, I think we've raised over $500 million. Wow. I mean, they're starting to make real progress. I think understanding sort of how cancer works, their, um, you know, immunotherapy is a really exciting field, which is bolstering the cancer immune system to to quash the cancer and to kind of figure out how to attack it. Well, you lost your husband to colorectal cancer, yeah, and your sister to pancreatic cancer, yeah. pretty in a pretty small window of time, right? Yeah, I did, and that just must have just out of the grief and the mind blowing of that whole thing. Is that what you got got you so active immediately? Yeah, you know, I was so frustrated. So honestly. it must be so horrifying. I, I've not lost anybody. You're to so that lucky, cancer. You're so so lucky, you know, because statistically one in two men and one in three women will be diagnosed in their lifetimes with cancer of some kind with some kind of cancer and you know it was interesting because i was sort of having this great happy life yeah. and uh, i was married to this fantastic guy you you would really like him. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. was funny and smart and interesting and kind of quirky and uh, we had two little girls five and one and he just hadn't been feeling well and then right he was diagnosed with uh with colorectal cancer, with stage four colon cancer, and had metastasized all and, over and, his liver, and, and it didn't, and he didn't feel, he didn't, he didn't know, like, like when he went in to get diagnosed, it was stage four already. No, I think he knew something was wrong. He'd yeah. been losing weight, but everybody is always trying to lose weight. Right. He so was tired, but he was traveling. We had two little kids. Right. Right. His stomach was bothering him, but he was one of those guys. Like on our first date, he had a roll of 
Tums. You oh, know, oh, he really? just always kind of had so sort of a little sour stomach. So there was no way for him to really make know that anything horrible was going on. No, you know, I just think it just, so you know, it didn't come into our whole sort yeah. of. You were young. He just wasn't in our yeah. sphere of right. possibilities. And right. uh, he was young. He was yeah. young, healthy. He never smoked. Yeah. He was, you know, pretty straight, yeah. arrow guy. I mean, yeah. he drank some. Sure. He never smoked pot even. Wow. I mean, he was very straight, but but not, <laughs> that, but interesting. You say that not, with a, a hint of disappointment. <laughs> well, you know, it's just kind of unusual <laughs> to true. find someone who's that, never done that. Yeah. And, uh, but he was a clean liver and, but very, very, uh, you know, cool and interesting. Right. And, so it's just um, devastating. Oh, just yeah. out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. Suddenly, boom. Yeah. Like suddenly, how can one day completely change your life? Right. I mean, one not only one day. It's like, how can one hour yeah. completely change your life? And yeah. it was such a a whirlwind. And going from he didn't even have a doctor, which a lot of young men don't have doctors. And it's weird. See, like I I know that you like had a uh, you did a colonoscopy. I think you broadcast one. Yeah. And I it I think that we're all in a certain amount of denial about that about our health in general. In that we don't want to go to the doctor. Even yeah. for maintenance checkups, because we don't want to know anything. Which is so moronic. It's stupid. Super moronic. Well, I mean, but if you think about it, it's not unusual for people to want to de- deny the reality oh, no. of death. It's, oh no. And I think it's very, it's it may be stupid, but it's very commonplace. Right. For, I went and, and had one. And, I, yeah. I, yeah. Not I, even I, just colonoscopies. How about just like, well, so a, many young men don't, was, don't have a doctor. I right. Mean, they don't go for physicals. And I think women, because we regularly go to the OBGYN sure, sure. for things like pap smears, et yeah, cetera. Right. And, you know, you need to go when sure. you're young to talk about birth control and all yeah. this other stuff. Yeah. You know, you need to get a prescription. So <laughs> sure. it kind of forces you into the medical system. Right. Guys, on the other hand, I'm aren't good. really. Well, I yeah. Feel all right. You're like, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And they're they don't they don't have to go, but they you know they really need to go. So it wasn't unusual that at at the age of forty one, Jay didn't really have a doctor. So when he felt awful and and you and, had health coverage, yeah, right, yeah, we were lucky. Well, you should go to the doctor if you got it. I know, right? But, but you know, tell that to a lot of your male listeners. You, I know they really need to go and just just once a year, just like bite the bullet, go to the doctor. And that's why when Jay got sick and he had it was doubled over in pain because he had uh, a tumor the size of a of a, an orange in his colon. He was completely obstructed. Oh my he, god! He had I had to rush him to my doctor, right? Because he didn't have one. It was uh, anyway. It was horrific, as you can imagine. I mean, anybody who has been through something like this knows what how sort of your life is in suspended animation and you you are in this cancer bubble Just... and you're walking and you're you're looking at people and you're like why are they having lunch in that restaurant don't they know my world is completely crumbling right why are these people buying why is this woman buying a sweater at this store you know right. it's just the weirdest right it's like it's a whole you, different time zone you, you're living in a parallel universe yeah. really and then i guess o- over time you realize that there's probably were a lot of people Oh, so many. And you know what? Universe. Sometimes now I'm so much more keyed in to a lot of people's private pain in general. Because sometimes right. I'll be on an airplane and someone will be a, kind of an asshole. And yeah. I'll be like, 
you know, maybe something really bad just happened. Maybe right. he got some terrible news. Maybe someone he loves is sick. You have no and idea. Maybe he is completely stressed out. So I kind of, I mean, I've always been a relatively empathetic person, but I think it's just very interesting. You do not, you have no idea what's going on Mm-mm. in people's lives. Right. And this facade that they present to the outside world is often times very misleading yeah and it's never it's not as much about you as you think no or, uh, it, no it, uh, almost always when you assume the worst that people are thinking about you mm-hmm. they have no idea it's not it has nothing to do with you. but uh, you know on the other side of that some people are just assholes that's true <laughs> <laughs> you're right about that yes but yeah i uh, i'm uh, i i need to go to the doctor I, so, I have to get, get a checkup. Well, will you? Well, I, yeah, of course I will. I how, have, how old are you? I'm 52. Oh, that's right. I read that. Yeah. So you did um, some research. I Katie? did. I did. I did. I read about did you. you and did you listen to any episodes? Uh, no. Good. That's good. I was going to, and then I was some... like, I was so crazed yesterday. I was working. And oh, I was you're reading cram. all this stuff. You're, you're thinking you were going to cram. <laughs> some I was going to. Uh, no, I was. But I, I read an, a really nice piece about you that talked about your background. Uh huh. Sort of all the things that you've been through, and Sam Kennison. Oh and, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, you've had a very interesting, <laughs> interesting life, and I'm I'm really happy things seem to be going well for you now. Yeah, I you know I don't know how to handle it, and it's a really? lu- it's a luxury problem. But yeah, I are mean, you I, are you are you having trouble adjusting to success? Yeah, a little bit. I, I, I well, because I don't spend money, and I don't really see a need to. But then all of a sudden, you feel uh, you want to do your part for the economy. <laughs> So what, you've been going to Target? I'm going to buy some stuff. Just buy things I, I don't necessarily need. I don't know. Well, that's like what that. Robert Reich says. That's what we need the middle class to, Isn't he great? to do. To, sure. to buy. Get out so there. Do your part. Buy some stuff. Keep uh, the economy strong. I don't. I just don't know what I need, but that's not, you know, the, I, I'll, I'll adjust to success. Yeah. I, I think my fear is that, you know, how long does it really last? I mean, you know, it's when is it going to- It's about things, though. Isn't it about, like, just kind of having fun doing what well, you're doing? Yes. Well, I think that the the part of um, whatever your sense of self is based on accomplishment, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't quite accomplish that or if your accomplishments aren't, you know, relevant or, or making an impact and you don't acknowledge them, that's a that's a horrible insecurity to go through life with. Yeah. In the sense that you're like, what have I done? Nothing. Yeah. I mean, everybody could feel that way, right? I guess, but I, I mean, feel that way. Do I, you I, really? Yeah, I do. After I do. You, you raised $105 million for you cancer know, I think, last night. I think everybody who's driven and trying to do stuff out there, I think they always feel like, God, I haven't done enough. Well, then they ought to go a little deeper because there's something deeper uh, screwed up about them. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. On the other <laughs> hand, if it propels them to continue to do yeah, but we're things but, impactful. But then, yeah, you're right. At what point? But do you have can a good time? A break. I do. But did you always? Mm-hmm. Yeah. See that? Well, you're different than. than, than I'm just wired. That's why people like you. I don't know. Do it they? Is. Yeah. I don't know. Some Are do. You kidding? Some don't. Well, I mean, maybe. But I let's let's go back to this ambition business. So where where did you grow up, and why? You know, what, what where did that start? How did you get? Let's let's break it down first. Grow up. Where'd you do it? I, I, All of a sudden, I'm Larry I King. I did it. Grow up. Where'd yeah. you do it? Caller, what's your question? <laughs> Childhood, go. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I grew up in Arlington, Virginia. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. That's nice. That's fancy. Yeah. Fancy. Isn't it? Or uh, maybe I'm thinking of- It wasn't particularly fancy. I grew up in a probably decidedly middle to upper middle class house. I think my dad bought our house in 1956 for- uh-huh. Like thirty thousand oh, dollars. Nice, good deal. You know, yeah, and yeah. my dad was a 
uh, he had been a print reporter uh, for United Press. So he was a journalist? Yeah, the Atlanta Constitution. He covered politics. And he had four kids. And I think uh, then he came to Washington and worked for United Press. But it was very hard to raise four kids on a newspaper man's salary. What did your other siblings end up doing? So my older sister, Emily, uh, who was the one who passed away uh-huh. from pancreatic cancer. So um, she was she went to Smith College, where both my sisters went. That's a good one. In Northampton. Yeah. Wasn't that an all-girls school sisters. at one time? It was an all-girls school. Still is. It is still. Yeah. So Emily uh, went to got a graduate degree in education. Uh-huh. She taught private school while her husband was going through Harvard Law School. And then she ended up working for the Department of Labor as a writer. Then she ended up working as a writer uh, for Legal Times of Washington, an inadmissible column. Yeah. And she wrote a couple of books about lawyers. And then she moved to Charlottesville because she got divorced. She married the head of cardiology at UVA. And then she ended up being on the school board and running for state senator. She was running for lieutenant governor with Mark Warner right. when she was diagnosed with uh. pancreatic cancer. And she was, I mean, people in Virginia really liked my sister. She was so smart. And she was, uh, you know, just an incredibly good campaigner and thoughtful and compassionate and uh-huh. a Democrat in Virginia. So she had to be pretty moderate to right, be a Democrat right. in Virginia. And um, so she was diagnosed and Tim Kaine took her place. Really? Yeah. And uh, so. He seems like a good guy. Yeah. I think that they were very fond of each other. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, so anyway, that that was my sister Emily. My sister Clara, who I call Kiki, who uh-huh. we grew up calling her Kiki, uh, is a landscape architect in Boston, and um, and and is went to Smith also in Harvard School of Design. So and she is does, very smart and she interesting. Does, she like, does a lot of she corporate does some, spaces, yards. She does residential projects, but she also does corporate. But she also does uh, city projects like when you know she, Harriet Tubman Park in uh-huh. Boston when she and comes like over that. to visit you does she touch your plants she actually did did my my yard <laughs> at my house look at yeah, and say I like hired this, her yeah this this is not healthy are no. you watering this enough that <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff no she doesn't do that but she did <laughs> she did sort of plan yeah. my oh, house nice. which was really nice yeah. fun to work with her and then my brother's a CFO he went to UVA where I went yeah and uh got a is a CPA but he's a CFO at a big financial firm and in uh, Northern Virginia, and so, you're and you're Katie Couric, the journalist you know, and you know, amazing kind of television nice personality. Is all my, all the kids in my family did did pretty well, which is nice. And and we yeah, had just incredible parents. There's one bad one. Yeah, there's no, usually no. a black sheep, but we don't really have one. <laughs> but what did you like? What like I I don't know. I like you uh, immediately. Like I never met you before that other night, and I met you for five minutes, and I'm like, oh, she's so Katie Couric like. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? You know exactly and I thought, what it means. He's so Mark Marin like. <laughs> well, no, but some people you see and then you meet them backstage at something, and you're like, oh wow, there's there's nothing. She's nothing like that person. <laughs> there's that, no there. there. Yeah, what is that? But you were like fully formed. Katie I don't know. Couric, all, you know, all the way I, I, I think if I've been, uh, you know, at all successful doing what I do, it's because I'm kind of very similar in my public persona, whatever, yeah. as I am in Me real too. life. I think, yeah. I think that's a that's a good observation. I mean, that authenticity work is so overused, but yeah. I do think it's one of those things like you can smell it. You right? can, and I don't know how to do it any other way. I don't know how people, I mean, obviously we behave differently in different outfits at different situations. Right. I mean, you have to rise to the occasion, right. but you can't become a different person. Like I, those people that are hiding monsters, they're, you know, they're, tr- they're problematic. Yeah. But- 
I have to assume you were popular uh, always. That's that's what I'm projecting onto you. I mean, like I in think, high school, you were like. I think I was fairly well liked. You know, I don't think I was ever. Um, I, I tried not to be. I tried to be a very uh, inclusive person. Like I, I, I wasn't clicky. I don't think I was. I like to be friends with everybody different people you weren't clicky no one no one thought you were like no there's katie well Kurt. maybe a little bit because i was a cheerleader and all that <laughs> of garbage. course you were i know god were so you the head cheerleader no i wasn't oh what'd you think of that girl uh <laughs> i thought she was fine whatever <laughs> oh come on yeah i've always been a little bit of a rebel a uh-huh. teeny bit you know i've kind of don't like authority and right I, uh, you know. So you didn't like the head cheerleader. Let's no, be I honest. I didn't, I didn't mind her. Actually, I have a funny story about that. Like in eighth grade, yeah. uh, they were, they, you know, normally the cheerleading, other cheerleaders would pick, pick the captain. But for some reason that year, the gym teacher who didn't like me, mm-hmm. didn't like me at all, yeah. decided she was going to pick the captain of the cheerleaders. Mm-hmm. And it really was an assault to my sense of the democratic process. Oh, really? It's a political issue. Yes, yes. And so she did not pick me. She picked someone else. And I remember just being so distraught, but really more distraught about the unfairness of the process. Right. And did you have the harbor thoughts of like, you're not the real head cheerleader? No, I didn't care at that point. I was just really (laughs) furious at the teacher because I thought it was was an abuse of power. Mrs. Beats, what the hell happened to her? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But did you think like, sometimes teachers can be very, I mean, obviously they're incredible teachers out there so i'm not indicting the teaching profession at all Mm -hmm. but sometimes teachers i think get this creepy sense of power or a chip on their shoulder yeah yeah but also kind of like i think laud their power of course in weird ways so that was an example of that yeah and you don't know whether it was an intentional uh, teaching of a lesson or just some sort of weird petty jealousy who knows why they make those kind of decisions go trip well yeah i mean they you know, they're just people. Yeah. I mean, I was a complete nuisance in school and, and whatever, you know, I was thrown out of a school. I was a smart ass. I was impossible. Yeah. Not a good student and a disruptive force all around. And it wasn't until later that I realized, like, I caused problems for teachers. Like, yeah. I, I was an obstacle to other children's education. Well, I can see why a teacher may not put up with that. Right. But then there's some other sort of psychological mind gains where where they right. favor one kid over the other. Or they're sure. kind of working behind the scenes. And right. That stuff is really creepy to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, maybe that's why you got into political reporting. Maybe. That's all. That's, <laughs> that is the beginning of it. It happens at every level, Katie. You there's know that. There's politics everywhere. Every level. Everywhere. Well, what's, what, well, what do you think that, that teacher, did you, were you a smart ass? Did you, did you uh, rub her the wrong way? Did you, come on, you usurped her power. That's usually what I happens. I might have usurped a little of her power. I might have not. I might. I might have not been sort of um, submissive enough, or subservient enough. Right. Sure. Right. Maybe I. I don't know. You were the one who didn't want to do the push-ups. Maybe. No, I don't know. I I can't remember. I think I. I don't know. You're blocking it. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. I don't remember. But you were horrible. Come on. But I had a very nice, nice, kind of normal, happy childhood. My parents were. You know, I feel like they were involved, but not overly involved. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, I guess, because of my own daughters. Yeah. How and old this are they? whole 20 and 25. Oh, so And this whole yeah. thing about helicopter parenting and- What does that mean re- again? That just means just being too close to your kids, oh, right, kind right. of micromanaging sure. everything they sure. do, having them be sort of a really a codependency. Oh, absolutely. You know, no boundaries. on your children. Right. Yeah. And- um, you know, my my husband would say that like my older daughter and I are uber uber close. Yeah. But um, 
I think working and having a really busy career was was really positive for my kids because Mm -hmm. I wasn't micromanaging everything they did. And they've had to kind of learn on their own. And that's what my parents did. I don't know about yours, but... Oh, I know about mine. Yeah, They were very self-involved. And I I don't know how busy they... My dad was always very busy. They were the other extreme. Your dad was a surgeon, right? He was a surgeon and And my mother was was around. She She had a boutique for a while. She's painter for a while. But they were very much... They were not great. They were fundamentally not nurturing people. Really? They weren't. Yeah. They weren't mean. They were just about them. Uh-huh. So it, the reaction was like we, me and my brother, had to react to them. They, uh. they, you know, they uh, worried a lot. But that was as far as the. Uh, they worried a lot about you guys. Yeah, yeah. But I think it was more about them. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. What yeah. am I going to do if that kid doesn't come home? Yeah. Self-involved. That's yeah. a good word yeah. for it. Yeah. It's a weird balance, though. You know, because you don't want to be so. You don't want to. You know, you want to have your own life. I don't know this whole sort of but they become separation people. and de- you know, right? I mean, you're, there's nothing. They're going to become it no matter what. Right, if they're, right. You're cognizant and capable, and everything's okay health wise. They're out in the world, and whatever they're going to make up for whatever you're not doing, either in a good way or a bad way. Yeah, but I just <laughs> think you know, I I think my parents kind of gave me the room to make mistakes and to do things on my own and not on top of me all the time so I could really fully form as a full individual. Yeah. And I think, you know, I hope that that's what I've done for my kids. Well, the youngest kids got it a little rough. You got to fight a little bit because they, they've been through everything already. So you got No, bring... I think the youngest kid is the luckiest one because yeah. they're so exhausted. They don't really care anymore. They let you get away with murder. I mean, my and parents ran a tight ship. Right. And, uh, you know, my siblings all made really good grades and I was kind of a little bit of a goof off. Yeah. And a t- terrible procrastinator. So, uh, well, Are you clearly, a procrastinator? Yeah, I, but that's primarily out of some sort of weird dread or anxiety. I think it's a weird thing. Like, I like the adrenaline rush of being a procrastinator. I oh, like, yeah. I like if I'm going out and I have to get ready and I know I it's going to take me an hour, I'll wait and only give myself a half hour because I like the rush of being stressed. God, Is that you, screwed you up? You live on the edge, no, Katie No, Kirk. I don't. You're just but waiting until the last minute. But do you... Shut up. <laughs> well, I could tell you about my heroin addiction. That would be fabulous. I'd post this at this afternoon <laughs> with that information. No, but you know what? I think there's a weird thing about people who, who are know, adrenaline junkies. Well, I think I, I what I get out of it is that, like, I'm the exact same way, but talking about authenticity is when you do that... You have no choice but to be in the present a lot because you're, you know, you're waiting till that whatever the last minute is. I have to assume that when you prepare an interview, I don't, I don't. This is what it looks like for me: just a lot of scribbles in a collage. That's that good. Yeah, but I haven't even done any of it yet. So <laughs> that's but, impressive, though. Is it? Yeah, I, you know, I prepare I more you than for just, you. Really? Well, yeah, because like there's like there's a couple people I prepare for and I hang them up. Aww. The one on the left was Keith Richards, and that one's I think um, Neil Young. But my my the point was that when you don't prepare or you wait till the last minute to prepare, that adrenaline carries you right into whatever it is that you were not preparing for, uh, or procrastinating, and it keeps it it keeps it going. Yeah, it keeps the rush going. Yeah, it keeps, right. Yeah, I think so. It kind of makes it fresh. So when you when did you decide to be a reporter? Um. Well, my dad sort of encouraged me to to pursue a profession where I would be writing because that was the one thing I could do well. Right. I wrote I wrote pretty well, 
And I wasn't, I, I think I was sort of bought into this whole girls aren't good at math. Remember they yeah. had a Barbie that said, right. I hate math. And yeah. I think. Uh, you believe I, Barbie. I mean, I got a two instead of one in Miss Lowry's class in first grade in math. And yeah. I was so devastated. I remember getting off the bus at the corner, running all the way down to my house and crying to my mom because I think even at six, I was a bit of a perfectionist. I wanted to do well in school. And I think that screwed me up for math for the rest of my days. But you, you couldn't hang that on her personality because math is pretty much, you know, just the numbers. You yeah. Could, you couldn't say she had something against No, you. no, no, no. I, and I, <laughs> yes, I'm it not was, blaming teachers the, the for any of my in. failings, yeah. but just, just Mrs. Beats and yeah. I'm still pissed at her. Well, but, gym <laughs> teachers are their own thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I was, uh, I was always pretty good at, at writing and uh, as I said, I could do it quickly and under pressure because I was a procrastinator. Right. So my dad encouraged me to pursue journalism. And then I wrote for my college newspaper. And then at, during college, I worked at radio stations in Washington. I worked with Carl Castle. Do you remember yeah, Carl? Wait, was, wait, don't tell me, sure. Carl. At, at for WAVA. years. He's so nice. He was the nicest man. And, Is he retired? Yeah, he's well, retired. Well, because I know what's his name does it now, the wait, wait, don't tell me. But yeah. Carl Castle, I know the name forever yes. on NPR. Yeah, wonderful guy. Yeah. And so I worked at different radio stations. Doing what, wrote, copy? Uh, no, I actually did a little reporting. and Got on the um, mic? Got, no, I didn't do that because, you know, I was 18, 19 years old, so they wouldn't let me do that. But I was an intern before their you, internships were so ubiquitous. And uh, and so I did They meant that. something. They, yeah. You were actually there to learn, well, yeah. not just there to provide free labor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, And so I did that. And then when I graduated from college, he said, you know, why don't you get a job at the Washington Post or why don't you do this or that? And I decided, um, I think I actually did apply for a job yeah. at the Post and didn't get it. And then I got a job at ABC News in Washington. That was your first gig? That was my first gig. And I was basically a, a gopher, a grunt, making coffee, answering the phone, you know, not, Xeroxing, not changing the, the teletype and sure. the wire machines <laughs> with little white gloves. I mean, that's how old I am, Mark. <laughs> Shoot me. And then, and then I decided, you know, I like to write. I like people. I'm... Um, I'd like to be a reporter and mm -hmm. I'd like to be on air. And I was horrible, horrible, horrible. But I slowly worked my way up. I went to CNN and they'd give me an opportunity to do some on-air stuff. But it fits your personality too in terms of that it's all very immediate. Like, yeah. you know, you got, you know, story breaks that day, you got to get it together. Yeah, and they so sent me out it. to Marion Barry to cover him, the mayor of Washington, D.C., who had a lot of issues. That was exciting. Issues. Did you party? Yeah, <laughs> yeah Mary and I. Yeah, yeah, with John DeLorean. Yeah. <laughs> You know, CNN was very new. Yeah. Everyone called it the chicken noodle, called it chicken noodle news, and sort of that was where they just repeat top stories in cycles all night long. Yeah. Well, you right. know, well, it was just a brand new operation, so they were pretty much saying, you know, to the janitor, "Hey, you want to report from Capitol Hill? Are yeah. you available?" <laughs> so they said to me, "Hey, do you want this uh, bureau chief at the time, who's since passed away, Stuart Lurie, who yeah. had been at the Chicago Sun Times?" He said, hey, Katie, do you want to uh, every morning say what the president's doing at the White House? So I was like, sure. And that's just public information. You just got to read that off the Right, the, pretty much off the wires, the, yeah. right? You know, they yeah. do the schedule. Yeah. So I went there and I, I was like 23 years old and I looked really young because yeah. I, I saw, always kind of had a young face back in the day. So I went and I was like... Today, President Reagan will be meeting with his national security advisors, a big new Brzezinski. And I was so bad. And I came back and the president of CNN called the assignment desk and said, we never want her on the air again. Oh, my God. It was God. so crushing. And I was like, oh, 
shit. So I ended up... Did you get all dressed up and everything? Oh, I did. I had my little suit on. I practiced (laughs) speaking in my hairbrush and, you know, in front of my full-length mirror. I think I was living with my mom and dad at the time. Yeah. So... um, Anyway, so that was an inauspicious beginning of my reporting career. But I I kept sort of, I kept at it. And then I was a producer. And then while I was a producer, I worked with these anchors who gave me some opportunities to do stuff. And then I realized if I was ever going to be considered a full-fledged reporter, because I think if you start at a place at an entry level, they never really see you as anything other than that entry-level position. Did you have a journalism degree? No, I, I, I majored in English and History, American Studies at UVA. So I did a lot of writing, and but no, I didn't study journalism. So you had to journalism. learn on the job. I mean, it's not, you know, listen, it's, yeah, I mean, it's not that complicated. To, to, it kind of is. I don't know why I make it more complicated, because I've been called a journalist before, but I don't, I don't ever accept that. Yeah, I mean... Who, what, when, where, why? Like, I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you, you, you have to be able to tell a story and write and put something together. Fact check. And when my dad had me talk to people, yes, of course, when my dad had me talk to people, they all said, you don't need to go to journalism school. That teaches you how to write, but it doesn't teach you what to write about. Uh-huh. So I wanted to get a, a good overall liberal arts education. I wish I had taken more economics classes, for example. Right. But I took a lot of history. I took uh, some political science. I took uh, English. And uh, so I didn't go to journalism school. But, but with that, you can fill in the gaps as you, you know, even if you're just reporting the president's schedule, eventually when you are a reporter, you have to become educated in the economy and in, you know, global affairs, yeah. foreign policy. It all. It's well, you of, have to kind of be, I always say you have to be five miles wide and an inch deep, you know, I mean, if you're a generalist. I've never heard Right. That. So yeah. you don't necessarily, I mean, that's why I admire Is that a word, generalist? Are, yeah, I think so. I like it. Yeah. And that's I mean, a, it's but a, it, it's sort of like you, you know a little bit about everything and not a lot about anything. But that's when you can just go, what do you think? Yeah. To whoever you're talking <laughs> yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, just enough to bait the person you're talking to to explain it properly. Yeah. Yeah, that's I know that trick. But uh, So anyway, so then I, then I started reporting. But, you know, when I worked were you, at though? those radio stations, I learned how to do interviews and put sound bites in and kind of I... I I did that. And then just writing for my paper, I did interviews and wrote pieces. But where were you first standing in the street during bad weather well, with a mic? Well, my first real reporting job was at WTVJ in Miami. Miami? Miami, yeah. So, so that was a great market because there was it was during the days of Miami Vice. There were a lot of drug right. story, tons of immigration stories. Yeah. And a lot of people who worked in local news in Miami would go on into national news. Why? It because was a really it, it was big like fear. A, an initiation of No, baptism. I think because so many of the local Miami stories had to do with national issues. Uh-huh. You know, like I said, drugs, uh-huh. immigration, uh-huh. crime, all that stuff that that wasn't just very specific to that did you, city. Did you do a lot of interviews with the with the silhouette and the garbled voice? No, not too oh. many. No, but I did like, you know, the body in the car and, you know, oh, really? I, I was on crime the crime scene. Yeah, crime scene stuff and uh, yeah, I did a lot of. Do you of remember really your first very... crime scene? Mm, I Not don't really. remember it. They kind of blur together, but uh, like bullets. No, I just remember. You know, you see that yellow tape, and yeah. you see a dead body, and you know it's. And they go, "Okay, I'm ready." You got my earpiece in. <laughs> yeah. No, I think you know. You look at it, and you see. Yeah. You see what's happened, and you yeah. see the collateral damage of that, and you think that was somebody's brother right. or somebody's kid and yeah 
Yeah. You know, I try not to be that jaded to think, oh, you know, because yeah. I wasn't doing crime all the time. Right. Um, yeah. You didn't have like a thousand yard stare you, from yeah, seeing you know, so like, much death and destruction. You have to have a lot of humanity to be a good reporter. You have to not see it as just, oh, this is my two two minute and 10 second story on the local news like this these are actual people right and it does and then it becomes sort of an education of dealing with you know the weight of tragedy i remember one of my first stories in washington so i worked in miami and then i went to washington as a local news reporter because you did good in miami at wrc you know i didn't want to stay in miami necessarily even though i loved the town i i I sort of wanted to be a national correspondent somewhere i just wanted to be a reporter somewhere right right. and but not local you wanted to be big time right well i wanted i i wanted to work at a network because i'd worked at abc at at the network level as opposed to an affiliate yeah. Right. So I went to Washington, and I'll never forget this story. I uh, These girls were driving in their car, and they were in front of a dump truck full of hot asphalt. And I don't know what had happened, but somehow there was an accident, and all the asphalt fell on their car and fell on them and killed them. And these were two high school girls. I think they were in Maryland, like Montgomery County. And... I had to knock on the door of one of the girls' parents' house, mm-hmm. one of the girls' houses, and I'll never forget the mom answering the door. And I mean, it, how grossly intrusive was that? And yet she let me in, and she showed me a whole photo album of her daughter. And and that's when I realized that with the right approach, I mean, I think journalists and reporters can be absolutely revolting, believe me. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I always say I hate the media, but I am one. <laughs> right. Um, but this, I, I realized that this somehow was helpful to her. This was cathartic for her. It, and, and, and I've had that experience actually throughout my career where someone talks about loss and I've interviewed a lot of people in tragic situations and yeah. in a way I think it validates the life lost and it 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 allows people to share something and allows them to kind of feel there's this community of grief and, and because I've always wondered gosh why would someone want to talk to somebody like me after someone something terrible had happened to them right but I think in a weird way, it can be healing. Right. Be- for for a lot of reasons, one of them being that th- their loss wasn't for nothing. Right. Right? That that it's been witnessed and, and that there are feelings connected to it and a life connected to it that, that should be seen in yeah. a way. And, 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 and valued. Like right. that life that's should right. be valued right. and validated. Well, that's an amazing thing to, to realize for you as that that you're the kind of person that people feel comfortable around. Yeah, did that Well, I think that you ha- I, I think well, I mean, I think you know, you you have to have true empathy and not right. that kind of feigned TV empathy. Right. You have to actually you have to care about other people. And and you know, for better or for worse, I I do. Right. And yeah, you can't really fake that. Right? Yeah. Mm. Well, you can, but it's I know, not attractive. But it comes off. It, 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 <laughs> yeah, and I and I and, and I think that some journalists say just all they're thinking about is the next, you know, like you know, question or what are or they how, driving or how or how they're presenting themselves. I mean, you know, I think 
television puts on a lot puts a lot of pressure on people because no matter how genuine you are there is a bit of a performance to it right yeah, because you, you're, you can't stop talking really you, you know you can't you're on tv so you can't sit there and, or you're just kind of very self-aware right of you know it's not like us even talking here it's like you have this whole sort of visual presentation where people are are looking at your oh, yes, affect and looking at yeah, your yeah. well think about live television or like on the today show so sometimes i would feel you know i would feel this way and yet and i would feel empathy but i would also be kind of keenly aware that my empathy was being translated which would make my empathy feel less sincere to me right <laughs> you know? right 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 you just sit there hearing yourself do it and be like oh this doesn't feel or, or you know, gosh, yeah. Yeah, this is, I'm not What did you gen- think when, you know what I mean? It's just hard. It's just, it's, it's, it's hard to stay, stay gold pony. Well, you get, but it's, it really is a matter of staying connected though. I mean, if you stay in the moment with the feelings, like, you know, I do it all the time and I don't, you know, I don't ask, you know, I'm not, you know, digging for something. But I mean, if you stay connected to the person and you're listening, you know, whatever you are is going to be present with you. Right. That's yeah. true. And if you kind of block out all the other external yeah. stuff. And that happens. That can happen in a TV studio. It can happen anywhere. If you just, it's sort of a you weird You got to lock into somebody, don't you? Do, you really do. Because if you drift, I, yeah, I hate when that happens because <laughs> it, it doesn't happen to me often, but if I'm playing with the volume or something or, you know, I'm even thinking ahead at all, like there'll be a second or two where I'm like, what, what did she just say? That, that, that happens to me once in a while where you're like, suddenly, uh, for me, it's less, sometimes I get panic stricken, like, oh God, oh God, oh God, what is my next question? I just forgot my next question. I knew what I wanted to right. ask, but now suddenly it's kind of slipped right. away. It's right. somewhere kind of above me. How can I bring that back? Right. Yeah. So, okay, wait. Now we got to get, let's get to- I know we can't talk about politics, but can I, I mean, what do you no, think? No, sure we can. What do you think of the, what's going on in what this country? What do you think? <sighs> I, I, I find it uh, depressing and anxiety producing and understandable. Right, and uh, I think I do feel like there are two Americas, as cliche as that sounds. And uh, you know, I've I've been trying to kind of figure out the underlying causes of a Trump candidacy and the people who are fueling it, and some of their frustrations and concerns. I was just reading this New York Times piece about, about the people that Paris, are voting Kentucky. for him, right? Yeah, that and support sort him. of about about what it is that appeals to to them about him or what it is about their, you know, their massive discontent. And I think a lot of it is about globalization. A lot of it is about kind of, um, you know, this, this liberal urban ethos juxtaposed with a, with a less sort of uh, perhaps sophisticated and um, more kind of, uh, real world problems but, but, that some of these these people are having. Right, but they also feel like their way of life and their possibilities for a future in that way of life that they thought was, uh, that they could get is gone. Absolutely. And they feel that, that you know, specifically, you know, white working class, you know, um, possibilities for, to have any hope or a future is gone. Yeah, and I mean, I think I've, I've thought a lot about, you know, are we witnessing sort of a massive transformation 
economic transformation, just as we did from going, you know, as we went from an agrarian to an industrial society, suddenly, I mean, it's been happening for quite a while. We're going from not only an industrial to a technological society, but then globalization is exacerbating all the the you know the impact of that and it's a friend of mine said with globalization there are winners and losers and maybe we didn't pay enough attention to the losers or maybe we didn't pay enough attention to the idea of the free market actually functioning the way it's been promised and and not really uh, taking into mind what greed would imply and mm-hmm. what you know, you know sort of competitive bidding on government contracts would imply and you know how these corporations have you know really no sense of of compassion not in, in a broad sense not you know there maybe there are some that treat their workers properly but also the-, the you know the demise of union in, unions instant gratification for shareholders like with quarterly sure uh reports and profits and, and then, all the pressure that that brings to bear and making garbage you know, like the whole sort of planned obsolescence model of, of, you know, nothing is designed to last anymore. Everything has to have turnover. So, you know, the, the idea that, you you know, all these products, no one has any real faith in any products anymore. You just know that even the best stuff that used to mean something is just garbage. You know what I think is interesting, though? They talk a lot about millennials and people bitch sometimes about, you know, people in their 20s and early 30s. Right. But one of the things that I really appreciate about millennials is... This sort of they don't seem to have this this uh, this attachment to things. Now maybe that's because they don't necessarily have families yet, right? Right. But they 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 want experiences versus versus uh, um, you know possessions. Objects. I guess know? I don't really know. But like, but on in a, in a way that's more immediate to what you do. I mean, you know, like when when politics happens, every political cycle. I mean, you know the players. There's you know there's a handful of the same guys that you know run these campaigns. There's a certain cynicism around political consultants that don't even really consider leadership or what's better for people or what's good for people. I mean, you know these guys. I mean, and in this campaign with Trump. A lot of the regular old dudes are not the dudes that are showing up to help him, which is interesting. But you also saw the entire news machine change. I mean, I mean, this was all in your lifetime. I mean, there was a time I've been saying on stage, like, I don't want to seem old fashioned, but I kind of miss there just being three networks. You know, maybe we weren't getting all the information, but at least there was a community around. I agree. I mean, I I feel that way, too, because I feel that. As as the landscape is so diffused and fragmented, there this you know this kind of sense of a, an American community has eroded because people just are in their own little silos of community. Sometimes that's great, that, that, obviously, and that's a direct but, manifestation of the internet. Yeah. You, know, uh, you know, they can cherry pick their information that fits their ideology, whether it's true or not. Well, as I said to I think the other day that to the, a friend of mine said people want affirmation, not information. And so, but but I know what you mean. Like, I do think there are a few of those big events, like some of them might be, I don't know, the VMAs or the Oscars or a big, or the Super Bowl or right. the Olympics, yeah. I think in some cases, where you kind of feel that there's this national community all sort of talking about the same thing or thinking about the same thing. But I think a lot of that has been lost with all the all the different places. And I feel completely overwhelmed with information all the time and anxiety-ridden that I'm not that I'm not consuming enough, even though I consume a lot. And even the Today Show, for to a certain degree, is 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 in in some ways more important to people 
than than whatever information they're going to glean or how, however their anger or or um, economic discomfort is going to be guided by misinformation through political campaigns and 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 propagandists right so like that's one of the decisions I made here was to deal with existential issues and like my mother's relationship with the Today Show was was daily you know I would wake up and it would be on people you know women I think primarily they would turn it on why they got us ready for school and did all their things and they check in here and there Mm -hmm. and there was just that process but it engaged them with a conversation that was a human conversation and I think that that part of what you, you do and what you're good at is in that immediacy of, of talking to other people, that sense of community is, is it, it genuine. And, and that, you know, as things get more confused and, and political lines are drawn and people have the information that they're going to use to, to fight with each other or whatever. Yeah, those kinds of forums become more important. Yeah, and it, but it doesn't really, you know, everyone's frustrated, everyone's lost, everyone's a little sad and everyone feels a little detached Right. From, and, and that's only getting worse in a way. So how do you fix that? But I was you're supposed to know, Katie. You're, you're Katie Couric. <laughs> oh no. You you were on the news. But I don't think that's going to I don't think that's going to change. I don't know, you know. I do the, I do I work at Yahoo and I do interviews and pieces and stories for them and I know that like I interviewed DJ Khaled and I think it was watched by 3 million plus people, yeah, right? Right. But it's weird because people, I think because people watch it at different times and the consumption habits are so different, Yeah, I don't necessarily feel like, oh, I did this interview and all of us are kind of watching it together. Right. And so something, I don't, yeah, I don't feel something that. feels a little lost in that. Like right. we're all sharing something and we're sharing it at the same time. I just, I, I can't help but think that people are like, you know, if I don't talk about politics with somebody, which I don't, that when I meet people and I get a sense of who they are and, and their feelings, you know, that when you have that human reaction, that, that, that interaction that's relatively uncluttered by things that they can push their anger through, you, you can feel that we're not that much different. No. And, and that's one of the problems. I just interviewed Joe Biden after stand up to cancer. And, you know, this is not a new a new observation, but uh-huh. it, it bears repeating. You know, he, we were talking and it's something that, you know, I've talked to a million people in Washington about, but these senators used to have lunch together. Now they don't even have like a dining room. You know, I, I remember when I was younger, I would I would be so excited to go in there and eat Senate bean soup. It was right. very exciting. It was like, mm-hmm. it was like you know, Campbell's yeah, yeah. bean. What right. was that? Ba- bean with bacon. Oh, bean bean with, with bacon. Yeah, I used yeah. to love that soup when yeah. I was little. But anyway... Uh, that was pretty much what it was, maybe a glorified version of that. And he was saying, you know, nobody spends time together. Nobody is at, you know, uh, picnics together or baseball games or they're all they're all uh, going back to their districts. They're all raising money for their next campaign. So it, this this I think this kind of detachment that you talk about that that individual sort of feel in this current landscape, yeah. you're seeing it among our lawmakers yeah. and they're not kind of sh- having these shared common experiences that really are part and parcel of of compromise and working things out they can just be they can kind of depersonalize each other yeah. right yeah. and demonize each other right. it's much easier to demonize someone you don't know right right yeah and that's why yeah. i think like social media has become such a cesspool because you know if you don't know the person you can just say whatever you want and if you're anonymous and you know, I th- I think we. Ch- I mean, I don't know what 
what can be done about that? But it's just like the floodgates of of vitriol have been opened, I, I said and it's I, just like how do you how do you put that genie back in the bottle? Which is mixing metaphors. I know. Sure, I, I I've been saying on stage recently. It's sort of like you know I kind of think it was better when everyone didn't have a voice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no. The good news about the internet is everyone has a voice. The bad news about the internet is everybody has a voice. And there are a lot of people, quite frankly, maybe who shouldn't have voices. Yeah. Is that a terrible thing to say? But well, I mean, it is like on, the, a, on, well, a de- on a democratic uh, on, uh, yes, level. Yes, I hear you. But, you know, horrible anti-Semites or racists well, or they, people, uh, mis- you know, cl- who are just, ugh. But, but yeah, I think that the qualification has to be like, you can have your voice, but put your name on it. Because so much of it is anonymous. And oh, so no, of, of course. Of course. Nobody would ever it. say that stuff. Own it to you in person but it's i think it's a i think it's symptomatic of people's powerlessness mm-hmm. and i think it's symptomatic of sort of the celebrity culture mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and uh you know who becomes known who doesn't you know why is that a goal right now i also think there's something to do with the detachment from y- 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 the internet there's a generation of people, maybe they're millennials or maybe not, and there's some people that have learned to use the internet, but for some reason, when it's on the screen, there there is almost a game quality to it that you're not necessarily going to attach uh, uh, human feelings to how you engage with that screen. That, you know, you can see a celebrity, you can do this or that, and there's this whole, their defense is always sort of like, well, then get off the internet if you can't take it, is that I don't think that there's a real connection for some people between like you suck or you know dirty Jews or whatever that that's going to you know influence a human being or have any real repercussions they're just sort of doing it and if they get a reaction whatever it is they're like yeah I won I got one I know but 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 I don't what? know how can people think that I don't know I just would never I mean I might have a conversation with somebody or I mean I don't really think I've done this online but yeah, I've done it, I guess, with, with yes, I yeah. have done it online. I take it back. But I just mean, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily uh, initiate a conversation. But I don't I don't understand how people can think their words don't matter and that there isn't a human being on the other end of that well, computer. Well, I mean, well you, you can, though, because in a sense, we just talked about the, you know, the people that are angry enough to, to support Trump without uh, without any like, there's nothing that guy can say that's going to make certain people say, like, nah, that's it. I mean, he literally said, I love Vladimir Putin. If he said that 20 years ago, that would have been the end, man. It would have been over. But these people are just sort of like, yeah, it's Trump. You know, so there is a detachment right there. Right. You, you know, they, they feel detached and angry. So, <laughs> fuck you. But I also wonder if, like, the, the, the ramifications of a statement like that are clear. Well, people's intelligence, and especially people who are just fueled by anger and misinformation, what does clear mean? <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you know, most people vote for presidents because they're like, ah, I like that guy. No, it's a very visceral thing. I know. Yeah, I mean, uh, but like, what, what, I don't want to anyway. miss large chunks of um, of of certain things here. So you 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 did the Today Show for a long time. <laughs> back to, back to my career. <laughs> Well, no, well, just well, no. I have, yes, I have yes. A reason. Sorry, sorry. Okay, I did the Today Show, but you were a reporter for fifteen years. I was for a fi- reporter, and then I worked at the Pentagon as right. a deputy uh, Pentagon correspondent with this wonderful guy named Fred Francis. But what I'm saying is, there's a big shift from reporting to to hosting to you know becoming a personality. Right. 
that you know and i think that's sort of what i was you know poking around at and that they are the same but there's definitely a shift you know from doing you know what is fundamentally an entertainment show the today show in a lot of ways well i i would take issue with that mark Marin. i think when i did it uh i and i think still there's some i'm not saying it's a bad thing no 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 I, i i know but you know, we did a lot of very serious interviews on the Today Show. I sure. started with Brian Gumbel and and then worked with Matt, and uh, we did a lot of politics. You guys, pals, still? Yeah, okay. yeah, with both of them. No, of course, I did. I, I, um, yeah, yeah, and I I did presidential interviews. I interviewed people on Capitol Hill. We did big issues. Um, so, I mean, yes, I think it was hopefully entertaining, but it wasn't like. Da, 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 da. No, I mean, no, of we course. Did a lot. We there was did, an element of that. Yeah. Well, maybe. Yeah. I mean, as it as the morning went on, it got lighter. Yeah. But we did a lot of really serious, important breaking news and, stuff. And breaking news, but also important interviews about a whole host of subjects. Well, well that was what's. Yeah. I. I know. I wasn't. I didn't mean to trivialize. And I. And I. To be honest with you, I didn't. I, Do I, I wasn't, sound defensive? A little. <laughs> and, and Katie Couric defensive, which was. I. I, I take issue with that. <laughs> No, squeeze me. But uh, but also there, you know, what was we were reminded of yesterday is that you were on the air on the Today Show when those planes hit those buildings. Yes, and, and they replay that every year on MSNBC, and it's um, <clears throat> sometimes I'll listen to a little bit of it, and I'll be like, it was it'll be surreal watching myself watching the events unfold, and uh, God, that was just. I've never felt such enormous responsibility in my life. I mean, I was terrified. I thought the world was coming to an end. Yeah. You know, I was uh, just, you know, as as one plane, then another plane, and then, another, you know, I mean, it's just sort of you, you thought, where is this going to end? Yeah. At the time, uh, my boyfriend at the time was flying from New York to Los Angeles. I was worried about, like, is he on one of these planes? Uh, you know, I had friends who had husbands or wives who worked in the world i mean it was just it was so scary and you were on the air when they fell i was on the air when it happened when at the very right. beginning till the when they fell i think i was on the air till oh like my five god o'clock. i think i was on the air till like four o'clock in the afternoon covering but, that and and the, the the horrible and, and the, amazing thing is is that with all your experience in reporting and also you know having the the dialogue with matt and having the the today, everything that that you did led up to that moment uh, it, it was and 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 enabled you well, to you handle know, it. I think that I mean that's a tremendous responsibility. I think a lot of people honestly could have handled it. I think it was just you're there and you know that something horrible has happened. That people are d- desperate for information, and you're desperate for information too. And so you're just trying to navigate all the different sources. And a lot of it is just kind of, you know, you're still on television. So you can't, you know, you can't kind of, yeah, you can't forget that, that you're still can't freak out presenting. and cry. Right. Well, you can't freak out and cry or you can't be like, you know, running off and trying to get information. I mean, it's all kind of happening. You're the, you're the, you're the front person, right? So it's really like being a conductor of an orchestra, and listening to people talk in your ear and figuring out when you're going to go and how to ask the right questions and how to bring in information. I mean, it's just, it's really just kind of, you have to organize things mentally 
at, at in real time. And that I think, and knowing that that people are 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 desperate, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, so it's it's challenging. But uh, but anyone, I think, with uh, but you also, you know, you want to have that. L- I mean, this was a a national tragedy of epic proportions. So you also want to be able to sure be able to hold on to your humanity as sure. well. And, um, you know, I, I, I remember my hand was shaking like a leaf when yeah. that, when that happened. And when that second plane, I mean, you almost felt like you were watching an, an, an Arnold Schwarzenegger disaster yeah. movie. Yeah, it was I, just I was... so, it was so hard to wrap your head around what was happening. And I'm such a weird glass half full person as you, as you, I know can tell. And I remember thinking, oh, thank goodness it's before nine o'clock and not many people are at work left or right. at work yet. Cause yeah. I, you know, was thinking where people work nine to five, you right. know, and, and of course that was completely wrong. And, and then I thought, oh, some guy in a private plane had a heart attack. Oh, right, I hope, right, right. you know, your, I just, your brain just wanted it to yeah, be. Yeah. It was, what do you call that? And... Joan Didion talks about, it was magical thinking. Right. Right. But when you did the, when you took the gig at the, at, Hosting the evening news, right? Anchoring, sorry. That's okay. I want to make a differentiation. <laughs> you want to what? I want to differentiate. Oh, okay. Begin- well, I yeah. was anchoring the Today Show too, by the way. Right. Okay. You weren't a, a co-host. No. Uh, you would never call it that. No. Uh, no, 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 no. We tried to avoid that word, honestly, because it was a little demeaning. I believe you. Yeah. I, and I, you know, and I and I bought that. I, I, I did that. I apologize. No, that's okay. But this, like, to be offered that opportunity, was that was that something? How many like male anchors did you know personally of that at that job? A Brokaw, I mean, yeah, I knew you Tom. Obviously, I knew Peter Jennings a bit, a bit. Uh, I knew Dan Rather. I mean, just very superficially, I would say. Um, I knew Connie Chung, who had worked as as an anchor. Uh, I knew Barbara Walters. Um. Diane Sawyer. I knew Diane. I mean, I didn't know her very well, and she and she wasn't. Uh, she anchored a primetime news magazine, but hadn't anchored a new an evening newscast. But she, right, but she was also like your your but yeah, of morning course. rival. Yes, yes, yes. She did Good Morning America when I was on. Was the that a healthy show. rivalry? Or I think so. I mean, you know, I uh, I I I've always liked and respected Diane. I think she's really smart and a yeah. hard worker, yeah. and. Uh, you know, we were number one, so yeah, it was healthy. <laughs> it's nice to be the winner, but you know that your tenure or your time there was like five years. Five years, yeah. And I didn't even realize it was that long because you know, in our brains, it was a difficult time for you, yeah. And the way it was, you know, framed by the news. But I mean, a lot of that just doesn't seem to be real. What do you think happened? Well. I mean, I think I'm. I I do think I did some. Pretty I was good, excited to see you there. Pretty good. Oh well, thanks, mm-hmm. thanks. I did some. I think I did some really good work during my tenure there. Um, I I think basically, I've analyzed it over and over and well, over. not over and over okay. again. But I think when I I I think I was an outsider in a very kind of insular organization that was extremely traditional. Just More by probably, being a woman. By by not working at CBS, not working my way up. Oh right, at, okay. At not really kind of uh, being part of the CBS culture. Right, okay. And I think that uh, it was it was partially maybe a little bit of the woman thing. I'm not sure, but I think it was more 
that I that I hadn't been sort of nurtured in the CBS right. culture. And I think they are the most traditional network. So I think there was some of that. I think the fact that Les Moonves brought me in but didn't necessarily have the buy-in of the people who were there. Right. And I think Les was looked at with some suspicion by the people in the news organization as the head right. of entertainment. Right. Um, and I think oh, that uh, like I, I also think that, that uh, you know, I know he was interested in really kind of uh, mixing things up mm-hmm. on the evening news. And I was too, just because I didn't find it super interesting just to read lead-ins right. for other people's stories. Right. And um, being a, uh, what is, I think, really is a presenter in some ways. Right. I wanted to do more interviews. Right. I wanted to be out in the field more. And I think we we tried to toy with the format a little too quickly. Right. Um, and, and I think it was, I think peop, the audience wasn't used to me. And then we kind of were doing this a different format. I think it was a lot of change pretty quickly. For that audience, CBS for, yeah, audience. Yeah, for particularly for a CBS audience. Older. And then I don't think because I didn't I don't think uh I probably just sort of thought like uh the Iraqis and the US soldiers when during the invasion that I would be greeted with open arms and you know, flowers and candies. Right. Like we know how that turned out in Iraq. Right. It wasn't exactly the case at CBS either. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I think there were some people who were suspicious of me or uh, why I was there, and and so I think all those Jealous. things kind of a confluence. I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. I yeah. you'd have to ask them. But um, so it was it was a tough environment, right? Um, uh, for a while, but then. When Rick Kaplan came in and became the executive producer, he was such a huge supporter and cheerleader for me. And we did great work. That's when I did the Sarah Palin interview. I did a lot of really important political interviews. I did some pieces at 60 Minutes. But, um, you know, again, maybe it's also – it's not that I that I don't like authority, but I kind of go into places thinking that – uh, you know, everybody's kind of sort of support each other sure. and we can all, you know, like yeah, let's make it work. Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland, let's yeah. put on a show. That's the and optimism. I think that um, that that there's a lot of politics and I've never been super political in a work environment. I've just been sort of tried to be nice to everybody and sometimes, you know, maybe overly demanding at times as well. But I've never kind of sucked up to authority. I've just sort of thought, hey, you know, if I'm there, they want me there and we're going to do great work together. I remember that when I went to- You forgot the gym teacher. (laughs) Yeah, when I went to to 60 (laughs) Minutes and got a tour when I first came, some, uh, one of the producers said, now, just so you know, the mantra here is someone else's success diminishes you. Someone else's failure elevates you. And I was like, wow, that is really effed up. Yeah. And I you said, can say, you can say it. I know, but I was just like, <laughs> I don't really work that way. Like to me, the world is full of great stories, and there are plenty of stories for everybody. Really, it's, you know, yeah, it's horrible when that, you know, that. But that was sort of the that was, that was kind of the mantra over there, and that's just kind of listen. I'm competitive as hell. Don't get me wrong, and I'm not like, yay, everybody do a story, right? And I I will fight for a story, right. but I also think at some point you get to a certain level and. Let you know, gosh, there's a lot of great stuff out there that everybody can do. Right. And it just wasn't not, that was not my ethos at all. Right. And you couldn't manage, like, it was hard. I would imagine it was hard to lead, like, because you needed to, you know, lead 
right? Right. So if you have those type, well, I of, think if you're if you have a very different kind of um, orientation, right, and you go into a place, it's hard to lead people who don't necessarily feel the same way or don't necessarily buy into your right you as a leader. Period. Right. And if their mantra is, "I hope she fails." Or, you know, I hope that, you know, that if that mantra is failing, you know what I mean? Like, if it's cynical like that, that, you know, the forces are going to be. I think that was speaking more to kind of the the attitudes regarding competition, you know? Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, so let's just talk two more things. The, the Palin interview, like, really changed, you know, people being interviewed on, during campaigns. Like I don't, it's probably frightened a lot of people, but it was so good and so necessary when you were going into that. Um, how objective were you? I mean, I I I tried to be objective. I I I think I was skeptical about her level of knowledge mm-hmm. and experience, and um, I hadn't seen anything that convinced me that she sort of uh, really had a substantive understanding of the issues yet. Right. You know, I did see her convention speech, which I thought was brilliant and, and uh, you know, really electrified yeah. that audience and a lot of people who are watching nationally. Right. But I, I, I thought the jury was really decidedly out on her accumulated knowledge and her ability to be a critical thinker and how she would approach certain very complex issues like listen i wouldn't know how to i i i wouldn't know how to run the country right i wouldn't have a such a a clear understanding of policy i think um but i wanted to but she's running for vice president right and of course at the time john mccain i think was the oldest candidate and right i was reading today about his health was an issue because he had had melanoma yeah. four times and people were concerned and so i i just really really wanted to ascertain without a lot of prejudgment what her views were on a whole panoply of issues right you know and so you were just doing a thorough interview yeah i just really wanted to be thorough i really wanted to hear what she had to say and how she thought right and how she approached thorny complicated issues right and what influenced her and kind of what made her tick and yeah. and, and i and i and, think you know just give people an idea because i think people didn't really know much about her at the time yeah and i talked to republicans and democrats before this interview just kind of pick their brains like what are you interested in what do you think are important and I know one person said, you know, just make sure you give her an opportunity to speak, you know, because oftentimes in interviews, as you probably know, you know, the impulse is to fill the dead air, right? right. You know, like you don't want there right. to be dead space. It took and, me a long time to let that sit. Right. And yeah. and so especially when you're on, you know, right. you're being videotaped, you know, you don't, you, you can't have those pregnant pauses right. necessarily. But I thought that was a good advice because it didn't make me... It, it it I wanted to allow her to speak and, and get full her feelings. Thought cycle. Yeah, exactly. Without me interjecting, like it was not your intention to uh, uh, allow to try to get her to hoist herself on her own petard. No, I just she, wanted to give her a chance to speak. She and was to, able to do that all on her own and so consistently. Well, she had a she had a tough time in that interview, and uh, you know, as a person. 
sitting across from her, I felt bad that she was struggling. I did. I, you're, I you're, you're, you're I know, laughing, I but no, you would too. I believe, you no, would too. I, no, I know. I believe you. I'm not. I'm only laughing because you know you were doing your job. You were not out to hang her. And and you know at some point I've had those moments where you realize like, oh no, she's it's, this is bad. Is you know it? I didn't realize I didn't realize how it would be interpreted though. It it, it in actual time I yeah. just thought people who were fans yeah. would say would either you know blame me or would not be that affected by what might have been seen as a poor performance and those who disliked her would use it as ammunition ha, yeah. to underscore their disdain. Sure. And um, I think what happened was for a, a, a swath of people who were kind of in that undecided category, uh-huh. I think they maybe were taken aback and thought, whoa, this person doesn't really seem like she has necessarily the expertise to but- run, to 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 be in right. this kind of you know high level position. But both of those other things happened as well. Yeah, I think so. Well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think is that where she started to sort of infuse the word gotcha media it must have been after that interview. You know, there was very little criticism by Republicans immediately after that interview. I mean, I remember people saying that the questions were exceedingly fair. Yeah. You know, it's, it's sometimes frustrating to me when the whole magazines and newspapers question, that that's the one that stands out in people's mind. Mm-hmm. But I asked her so many things about Iran. I asked her about taxes. I mean, we it was a very wide-ranging interview, first at the United Nation and later at a campaign stop in Ohio. Reasonable questions, though, for a- Yeah, you know, totally reasonable uh, questions. Can- yeah. at that level. Oh, completely. Yeah. Completely reasonable, but also questions that, in my view, required a certain degree of knowledge right. about certain sure. policy issues, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. and That's not a lot public to ask policy. From the vice presidential and, uh, candidate. So the gotcha thing, I think, you know, I think. Where do you, where do you go from there? Yeah, well, uh, you know, so well, you I think know where that's, she went. That's a fa- <laughs> that's a familiar sure. kind of I think rejoinder if right. if you're. Um, unhappy with your performance yeah of course yeah that's a it's a standard uh, blame the other person uh, thing in politics yeah yeah if you but, can defer but I, blame I, but but it's it, it it's funny because i do think it's it's been hard for me say to sit down with donald trump well he's well he's great great in that horrible way that like everything's rigged the debate's rigged the election he's setting you know he it, it there's there's a genius to his horrendous blame deferring thing and you know, and the, and the con of him. You've never interviewed him. I, I mean, not since The Apprentice. <laughs> I haven't, that? I haven't uh, sat down with him for an interview. Well, and I've, was... I've tried. Oh, really? He mm-hmm. won't do it. Mm-mm. Huh. That's interesting. And so you've I, got, I, how many you know, times have you interviewed Hillary? I've interviewed her a bunch of times, but I haven't interviewed her for this campaign either. But in both cases, your sense of Hillary over time, interviewing her through. Uh, attacks through, uh, you know, the uh, philandering husband business and all of that, you know, what is your sense of her as a person? I think that uh, that she is being extremely careful mm-hmm. right now. Um, I think that she is incredibly smart, understands policy, mm-hmm. you know, through and through. And capable. She, incredibly she... capable, incredibly competent can be really fun mm-hmm. and warm. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like like she's got a whole army of people sort of protecting her 
and keeping her from well you know of course we've you've read how she hasn't done many press conferences sure. she hasn't made herself yeah. super available and i think i think i think that stance in stark contrast to the ubiquity of Donald Trump, right? And I don't think it's necessarily served her well. Um, but but I also think that that a lot of these interviews, I saw something that someone at Business Insider had done, and I thought it was nice because they were talking about issues. It was a long, it was a longer interview, and mm-hmm. she could really talk about things she would do if right. she were elected. And I think those kinds of, I mean, I hope the debates will provide that. Because those kinds of really substantive conversations, I think, have been kind of lacking because all this other clickbaity, yeah. you know, important stuff that that shouldn't be ignored, don't get me wrong, but that is so monopolized the conversation. Um, I think sh- it would serve her well to to do some more kind of let's talk about ISIS and let's talk about what's going on in Afghanistan, or let's talk about income inequality. What do you see as the real key to giving people right. more upward mobility? Right. Hopefully let's, the you debates know, will do you that. Know, I, I yeah. hope they will, because I feel like, I don't know, I feel that that's been kind of missing in the discourse. Sure, of course. Yeah, because he, in look, you know, whatever he is, I mean, I he, he's not an unusual American character. Uh, you know, the, the sort of, you know, classic populist huckster i mean it's not it's not surprising you know he happens to be very good at it uh whatever that is but i i it will be interesting to to see them really go at it and he's going i i imagine he's in intensive schooling right now i don't know i read that he he does he's not a big fan of of quote-unquote over preparation and that um i'm not sure i'm not sure if he is because his new advisors, he doesn't seem to have changed sort of the content of his comments. Right. Um, and so I don't know. It's going to be really fascinating to watch. And I think a lot of people will be examining how she reacts to him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just it's it's all those weird kind of almost meaning, not meaningless, but these sort of superficial theatrical moments that people attach so much meaning to mm-hmm. right yeah rather you know whether it's right it's it's like it's uh i paid for this microphone or al gore sighing or different cl- you know kind of it's it's a lot of theatrics and so and our brains are kind of clickbait oriented yeah you know? and also the con the the nature of the competition is is not about policy and it's, and it's not about but it's also right. being able to distill policy right. to really understand you know to be able to right. communicate people, it in an understandable way i don't think you know people don't want to see people wonk out you right. know they know. want to say like how is your life going to be different or this is what we're going to do or it's going to take some sacrifice or right. we're going to have to go through this tough period and i don't know i think that kind of uh, it, it takes a lot of skill to do all those things, right? Uh-huh. To be a good communicator, to kind of laugh things off, to not look, you know, too scorned or not pow. I mean, it's just yeah. like for for both of them, right? Yeah. Tough but gig. I think he's given a lot more leeway because he is seen as such a loose cannon. People are much more forgiving when they, and they say, "Oh, that's just Donald Trump," right? But yeah. no one says, "Oh, that's just Hillary Clinton." No, hell no. They're like that criminal. Yeah. It's funny, a friend of mine uh, who lives in Atlanta was driving and saw a bumper sticker on the back of a car that said, um, life's a bitch, why elect one? Ugh. And so she, I'm like, Susan, you shouldn't do this, it's dangerous. Like there's this thing called road rage. Yeah. So she drives up next to the car and she kind of throws her arms up like, what? 
And the guy rolled down his window, and he was super kind of mild-mannered, uh-huh. middle-aged guy. Yeah. And he said, may I help you? And she said, I just don't understand that bumper sticker you have on your car. And he said, she's a lying bitch. She's a effing liar. And then he peeled off. And she was like, wow. Yeah, but what is that? <laughs> See, when that happens, and, and this is the same with Donald Trump, and this is the same with that type of anger, is that that's not about her. How can that be about her? How does you know these people become vessels and portals to for people to dump their whole life into? I, I just don't know where that became the thing where you hang these these hopes and these psychological problems of your own onto presidential candidates. Where you, it's like th- this is called a di- anger displacement, right? And and it's like it, this is a difficult job that requires you know incredible management skills and incredible sensitivities to a lot of different things, and for people to just trivialize it. It's just mind blowing to me. Are you excited? Are you frightened? Are you uh, what? What? What are your feelings heading into this thing? I'm. Uh, I'm worried. I'm worried about the country. I am. I'm just. Uh, I'm worried about. I mean, it sounds so, like, predictable, but I am worried about how polarized we are. I'm worried about polarization. That I'm worried about. Not not just on on both sides. Yeah, and I'm worried about a certain self righteousness and inability to listen and judgment on both sides. On both sides, right? And kind of our 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 unwillingness to talk with each other instead of I mean just to jump down people's throats. I mean you cannot if you don't know what to say or you don't say the right thing out of ignorance out of whatever. This just this this this. This fury, uh, yeah, this fury and this this desire to pounce, yeah, uh, almost instantaneously. Mm-hmm. I think it's 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 very damaging to civil discourse and to empathy. And I mean, I I go back to what you said. I really do believe that that people have so much more in common, you know. Oh, yeah. Then, but but. But we're all almost being conditioned in a Pavlovian way, practically, to, to retreat to our own corners yeah. and to have these attitudes that are reinforced by, by our, own, our right. own ilk that then are attack, uh, that, that cause you to attack the quote unquote other. You yeah. know, there's this otherness yeah. that's going on in the culture now. Yeah. And, uh, and so I'm worried. I'm, yeah. I'm worried. I, I, I hope that it will get better. Joe Biden said he had tremendous faith in the American people, and yeah. we've been through bad times before. But I've never felt sort of I, I'm a, I feel a little despair, honestly. Yeah, and I feel a little fear. Yeah. Well, what are you going to be doing on? Thanks your... a lot, Mark. Now I'm I, really I upset. <laughs> I, I came in here feeling so I happy. Did it? I did it. <laughs> Look what I did. I made. Katie Couric sad and despairing. <laughs> well, what are you doing on your podcast? Um, well, I'm having fun. Good, see? I'm working with uh, a friend of mine who I've known for, gosh, about uh, 12 years named Brian Goldsmith, who's mm-hmm. a very, very smart, talented, interesting young man uh, who I always tell the story that he got 
grounded in high school for sneaking out of his room to watch C-SPAN. Wow. That's what that's how big a nerd he is. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I love talking to him about kind of what's going on in the country and politics, and he reads everything. He consumes everything. Right. And he's sort of my shell answer man. Right. And actually, he helped me when I was preparing for the Sarah Palin interview. And uh, so I said to him, I partially, I, I think he's enormously talented and I want to help him find an outlet for that talent. Uh-huh. So I said, why don't why don't we do this together? It'd yeah. be fun. And uh so we're 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 doing a lot of different we're having conversations with interesting people. Uh-huh. Um we I just talked to Bob Woodward and Tina Brown about the media and, mm-hmm. and how responsible and what is the media doing right and wrong, which Great. was really interesting. I talked to a. We talked to Jonathan Weissman, who works for the New York Times, who was subjected to this dis- disgusting anti-Semitism online. Right, right. Um, so he was he was really interesting. And then I talked to Richard Cohen, who's the head of the Southern Poverty Law Center, about sort of hate speech in general and what's going on in our culture, kind right. of the stuff that we were talking about. Um, you know, it's just an opportunity to have interesting, intimate conversations and to go a little deeper and to. You know, I'm I am kind of an endlessly curious person. I like I like learning stuff yeah, from sure. people. Yeah, I yeah. like I I'm confused about the state of the country and the world and I'm kind of trying to figure it out myself. Great. And That's so, a good place to be. You know, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I wish Well wish it leads I, to good conversations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's been fun. Well good. And you and you you're you're in a happy marriage now. I am. I'm really lucky. Fun. I have a great husband who's. Wow. I think you'd like him. He's really funny. He's yeah. very dry. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And you know, I I I've, you know I'm crazy about him. But one thing I think he's just good company. Like I like being with him most of the time. Sometimes yeah. he's not <laughs> a great company and vice versa. Sure. But. Um, you know, he, I just we enjoy each other, well, and uh, so he likes to travel. He plans a lot of fun things. He's got a much, I think, healthier attitude about kind of work life balance. I'm very still kind of crazily driven, doing a bunch of different projects, doing right. Yahoo, doing this documentary, doing this podcast. Ah! Yeah, you know, I'm doing a couple of other things as well. I started a production company, um, but he's got, you know, he he likes working, but he also really enjoys having fun and traveling and playing golf and he goes fly fishing with his friends. And really? He's just, yeah, he's cool. He knows really how to live fun. life. He does. And I, I actually need to learn how to do that a little better. Me too. All right, well, maybe we'll check back in and we'll see how we're doing with that. Yeah, I'll the see fun how part. I, and, and what about you? Are you in a happy relationship? Yeah, we're doing pretty good. You know, she's a painter and, you know, we we have similar types of lives. But I still think I need to figure out how to, because when you do all those things, especially when you're doing it on your own terms, it's very hard to decide when work stops. Mm-hmm. Does it ever stop? Like, I don't know how to just say like, all right, this month, we're taking that month. Yeah, or we're taking two weeks. I'm not. I'm not going to do the work. Uh-huh. You know, I don't know how to do that quite. Well, I think you need to do it even more. I mean, I'm, I I, sh- I should talk because I've got some of the same issues. Yeah. But I think you have to do it on a more daily basis too. Where, you know, y- you can't be you can't be keyed into it twenty four seven. And I think part of the secret is, my friend, the phone. Turn it off. Turn it off. Put it in a drawer or, you know, put it somewhere where you can't find it because I think this is ruining society. No, definitely. Oh, my God. My daughter, I mean, she's staying with me out here in L.A. because she came for a bat mitzvah, a little sister, a a friend of hers, little sister. And uh, 
you know, it's just, it is constant, constant, constant. And I find myself wasting oodles of time on this device. Sure. And I think it's very damaging. I think, you know, and it's interesting, and I'll, I'll shut up because I know I'm talking too much, but, you know, they did this study that the difference between a child of poverty and a child of means is something like 30 million words by the time they're three. I could be getting this wrong, but it's some astronomical number. And it's because mothers who have have sort of an, a higher socioeconomic uh, status, they they are are talking to their kids more constantly, talking to them, saying, look at that red apple. Yeah. And, you know, um, just their their verbal sort of interactions are nonstop. And a friend of mine said, did you ever think, I see all these young mothers pushing strollers and they're on their phones or they're on their, you know, doing their whatever they're doing right. on their phones and they're not really talking to their kids. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, you know, this is really, is it's a dangerous thing because so much of childhood development is based on this verbal interactivity. Yeah, I mean, I like. Have you ever had that moment where you think you lost your phone? That'll show you how. Oh what my god! What your relationship you is with almost that thing. hyperventilate. Who doesn't hyperventilate? It's crazy. It's like that's it's most of your brains in that phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's but but I mean it's it's real and it's yeah. and listen I'm as guilty as anyone because I'm not sort of being preachy here. Yeah, I, I've I've got to figure out how to get it under control. You know, didn't uh, you have an issue with your phone? What happened? Didn't you, didn't something happen? Oh, Amy Schumer. Oh right, that's right. Oh my God, and I love Amy. Yeah, but it's like Amy, really? Can you find some new material? It was very funny. So <laughs> I was at a glamour dinner. Yeah, and I left my phone on the table. My husband came, and I was like, "What is he doing here? It's a dinner. Yeah. He wasn't supposed to come, right? Because you know, right. I think he thought it was a cocktail party, but right. it was like a seated dinner. Yeah, and uh, so so she took my phone, and that's when she texted him, "Do you do you want to have anal tonight?" <laughs> and of course, he looked at it because he's so funny, and he's like, "Yeah, whatever, correct." Yeah, but but um. I always say she should have, in her routine, said what my husband wrote back after yeah. he got that text, yeah. which was, again? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was great meeting you and talking to you. I feel like we can talk again another time. Too, yeah, no, right? I really enjoyed being with you. How did I do Mark? as an interviewer? You're the. I thought you were great. All I mean, right. it's it, it's not really an interview, as you said. No, as you have said, yeah, it's yeah we a conversation. Not enough Just, policy talk. No, no, no. Plenty of policy talk. I mean, yeah. It's, uh, you know, anyway. Well, I'm we happy need somebody you're doing to, good. We need to have uh, somebody, like, we have, people need more, uh, more people who can help distill these issues and synthesize them sure. and drown out the noise and yeah. talk about, like, the, the real co- core of the issue and how we're going to solve some of these sure. big, big, fat problems that yeah. we have in this country. Are you still working out a lot? I don't. I haven't really. I've been. I've sort of fallen off the wagon. Man, I've been I remember doing... there was at some point where I saw a picture of you. I don't remember when it was, but you were like buff. Really? Yeah, I, I remember noticing. I've, not like, really. Like I, I, I've always had. I've always had big arm muscles because I was a gymnast when I was little, oh. and so I have a lot of this muscle memory. Yeah. So I'm. I've always had sort of that going for me. But um, did I, you I, do those backflips and stuff? I, I, I did do backflips a little bit. And not lately. Not lately. <laughs> oh my God! I'm trying to do yoga because the older you get, the more you want Kate to stay flexible. You gotta stay. You gotta stay flexible. Keep that and core I do, tight. And, and I do some spinning, and I think I have to go back to Pilates because yeah. I think that's really good for your core. But 
I'm busy. I have to, and you have to be disciplined, mm-hmm. you know, about exercising. I noticed you have floss in your uh, in your bathroom. Well, I, you got to be disciplined about flossing too. But as I told you, Mark, there was a new study that said I I, flossing doesn't really do anything for but you. But I have my gums one less are, thing to feel guilty about. But I have I have problematic gums, and I think that flossing helps them. Well, I wonder who came up with that study. I wonder if it was like. I'm I not, know. I can't stop it. Like, cause I think it's helping me. Yeah, it probably is. And now, and you're taking away that slight bit of kind of like weird superiority, I feel, <laughs> uh, from, of being. The, of being the, a flosser? Yeah, a daily flosser. Yeah. You know, I was. <laughs> well, we're going to have to get people. to the bottom of that study because I think a lot of people who don't floss felt very happy about that. I, I, I still think, I, I'm going to ask a dentist. Okay. All right. All I'll right. talk to you later. Bye. I honestly love her. I love Katie Couric. I don't, I just, I, how, I'm just sitting here looking at her and talking to her and I'm like, I, how can you not love her? That, I don't know. I, I just, I can't help myself. Uh, I'm glad she came by. That was very nice. Thank you, Katie, for coming. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Get on the mailing list. I still write that every week. Oh my God, I'm tired. Tomorrow's my birthday. Tonight are the debates. Can I just say this as an addendum? If you really believe that Donald Trump is a decent and uh, smart man who's capable of leading this country, and this has nothing, you know, I don't care if you like Hillary or not or whatever, I, I don't care if you're a Republican or what, but if you really believe in that man, I just have to honestly say, you're a fucking moron and a sucker. That's all. I'm going to play a little guitar. Hold on.